You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Here on this podcast, we focus on the challenges and setbacks that artists face. But there is one podcast out there focusing on the spectacular failures of companies and organizations. Lauren Ober is the host and producer of that podcast and is also a journalist, a noted speaker, and a voice coach. In part one of our conversation, she and I discuss some of the parallels between being on stage and being behind a mic but we focus mainly on the rise and fall of the big Broadway production company, Livent. Garth Drabinsky's whole thing was we have two sets of accounting books, one for the investors and one that are the real ones. And the ones for the investors showed a really rosy picture and the real ones were like, they've lost hundreds of millions of dollars. Welcome to Why I'll Never Make It, or Win Me for short. Here you'll learn how artists and creatives handle the setbacks and challenges in their career. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, a professional actor and singer for almost 30 years and a backstage expert who knows firsthand the ups and downs we all face. For more insights and to take a deeper dive into the Win Me community, go to whyillnevermakeit.com. By joining this podcast as a monthly member, you can get access to exclusive episodes, video content, as well as coachings and consultations with me. I was first introduced to Lauren as the host of one of my favorite podcasts, Spectacular Failures. (laughs) As you could guess, the name itself intrigued me. But it is her personality and presentation that really make the podcast rise above just another news feature presentation. I've wanted to bring Lauren onto the podcast for quite some time, and although she's not a performer herself, the work that she does in audio holds a lot of lessons for us in theater as well. But the thing is, I didn't know Lauren. And so it was a random, cold email to her introducing myself and the podcast and then asking her to come on as a guest. Now, for her podcast, she does this all the time, arranging interviews with those involved in the spectacular failures. 
You know, normally people say yes to me because they know what's good for them. No, I'm just kidding. They, uh, no, 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 because they wrote a book on this subject or this is their area of expertise or, you know, it generally isn't that hard. I mean, it's harder to book guests when you say, you know, hey, uh, you were this, you know, the head of a failed business. Do you want to talk to us about what you screwed up? And most people are like, mm, no, thank you, pass. Right. We've had a couple of CEOs or former CEOs who will come on and, you know, um, and talk about, you know, what happened or, or sort of defend themselves. Or we've had family of people come on who are not, who are telling the story of like their father or whatever. And, you know, I mean, but it's hard to hide. Like our show's called Spectacular Failures. So you kind of know what you're getting. And my favorite episode on her podcast, which is actually what inspired me to reach out to her and ask her to come on the show was a feature that she did on Live Entertainment Corporation of Canada, better known as Livent. It was a theater production company based in Toronto and founded in 1989. In the early 90s, they branched out beyond Toronto and brought Kiss of the Spider Woman to Broadway, as well as Showboat and Ragtime. Now, last season, I had Eric Jordan Young on the podcast, who was in the original company of that 1998 live and production of Ragtime. He talked about how lavish the production was, which was a hallmark of all live productions and was one of many reasons the company was bleeding money by the late 90s. But ultimately, there was one man responsible for their spectacular failure. Livent was a company started by a um, fellow named Garth Drabinsky, who had previously been kind of the founder of the Cineplex. Like before he came along, there weren't these gigantic movie theaters where you would have like 20 screens. Um, and he was a lawyer in Canada who always was interested in film and theater and was very cultured and, you know, wanted to get into that business. And so he sort of cut his teeth in the film exposition business. And then he actually produced a movie, like a horror movie. So he got on the creative side of things. And then he shifted his, his interest into live theater. And the thing that made his company Livent different than others was that it was going to be a publicly traded company. So as anyone who has worked in theater knows, raising capital to mount a show is the hardest thing. Right. And that the returns are generally dismal. I mean, there are very, very few shows that even break even for their investors. And oftentimes the shows are a, not a vanity project for, for investors, but they're a fun thing. It's not like you're investing in the market and you expect 2x return or 10x return or whatever. You're doing it for fun and because you enjoy the theater and because you know, it's sexy, right? And so I think Garth Drabinsky was sort of um, like, he wanted to upend that system and have a constant stream of money to mount these very ambitious shows that he was interested in doing. And, you know, for me, I, I heard about this story from a fellow named Marty Bell, who's in our story, and he had been the senior VP of creative affairs at Live End. And I was at a dinner party with him. He happens to live here in Washington, D.C. now, and he doesn't work in theater anymore. But, you know, he was a big New York producer name for a while. And he told me about it. 
I mean, I love, I love a grift. I love a fraud. You know, I love, cause I am not smart enough to pull any of those things off. You know, <laughs> like I'm, yeah. I, I'm more of like a, I could, I could beat you up person, but I couldn't like steal your wallet. Uh, I wouldn't be a clever criminal. So, you know, there was all kinds of accounting skullduggery that was happening with live end. Garth Drabinsky's whole thing was we have two sets of accounting books, one for the investors and one that are the real ones. And the ones for the investors showed a really rosy picture. And the real ones were like, yeah, they're, they've lost hundreds of millions of dollars. I think it's like a great theater story. But more than that, I think it's an interesting business story about how you try to make this, you know, this business with razor thin margins or enormous risk involved. Um, how you how you try to make it profitable. I had no idea how hard it was to because I've I've had friends who were, you know, Broadway actors or in national tours of things. And I was like, y'all making some good money. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, when, okay, when you're I, in the show, as far as yeah. like you know, if you're in the like the tech union or the actors union, you know, that those rates have been negotiated very well. So you, yeah. you are taken care of. But that doesn't mean that will your show last two months or two years or right. you just never know. Right, right. And so, yeah, and these productions that Garth Drabinsky and Livent put on, while they were beautiful and lavish and multi-award winning operations, they were so top heavy. They did not recoup their investments, not even in the slightest. I mean, I think Showboat when they did the revival of Showboat, but it was the most expensive musical ever produced, you know? Um, and it's and it's Showboat. Right. It's not like it's some, you know, technical extravaganza. It's an old musical that doesn't really need a lot of gidgets and gasmos to, to tell that story. Right, but I think the so petticoats, think, I think petticoats are really expensive. <laughs> okay, yeah. I think those costumes, well, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but it was like, it was like, you know, it's like a stagecoach and like a full saloon. Like, it was like just a whole, like, here's like an enormous boat, you know? Like, it's, it was like all these things that they built. And one other thing is that Garth didn't use union shops. You know, he, he, he was like, you know, I'll set my own rate. And those rates were often higher than union. So people were like, sweet, I get a really good salary out of this, but 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 then there's actually like no money. So it was a pretty yeah. it was really, really fun. I think that that was my most favorite story that we've done because it combined um, you know, things that I love like fraud and the theater and getting to talk to theater people is like the most fun thing ever. I mean, we talked to Katie Huffman, who was the original Ula in the producers on Broadway, and she was just so fun and delightful. It killed me though, because it was right before the lockdown. And all I was thinking about was all these folks that we talked to for this story were out of work immediately. And then, you know, all of their friends and all of the tech crews, and like everybody who, who ever had anything to do with getting a show up and running now didn't have a job anymore. And it just broke my heart. You know, I mean, we, we love all of these people, you know, theater's <laughs> right? great. We want to see them and we yeah. want to see them perform again. And, in, not in a Zoom screen. Well, it's just so interesting that that story, as, as well as this pandemic, it highlights the fact that we forget how tenuous 
theater and the arts can be. Mm -hmm. it, 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 you can either make wild money like a wicked, or you can make no money like Livent goes bankrupt. So it can really go either way. You can go big and go home. Right. You know, right. you, you, you can you can do both. Right, right. Yeah. And also just thinking about all of the people that are involved in, I mean, we have very few people to get our podcasts up and running, you know, but when you think of, um, you know, even just a, even just like a basic musical. I mean, it's in, the cast alone and then all of the people, it's just so many people and the theater industry employs so many folks. I mean, it's like when um, the auto industry tanked and it's like, it isn't just these large car companies. It's every tiny widget maker who are working with auto workers. I mean, it's just like the knock-on effect is huge. And yeah, and you see like it only takes a little thing or a big thing, you know, pandemic is a big thing, but it's like, but it's like a virus to like just totally decimate an entire industry. I mean, the performing arts is a difficult profession in normal years, but COVID has certainly added new frustrations to finding work. In the third quarter of 2020, the National Endowment for the Arts compiled unemployment rates for artists. While the overall job market had an unemployment rate of 8.5%, musicians and singers faced a rate of more than 27%. Actors were almost twice that at 52%, with dancers and choreographers leading the way at almost 55% unemployment. So for many in the performing arts, myself included, making it has almost seemed impossible during the pandemic. And the title of this podcast has taken on new meaning. Well, I guess it depends on what make it means. That is what has become the meaning of my title. At first, yeah. it, you know, I was with a co-host and we would just kind of talk about the various things that we mess up and our own weaknesses and this is why we're not making it. But over time, why I'll never make it and why none of us make it is because that making it constantly changes that definition sure. what it means. And it's going to mean something different for every person. So that's why it's a very nebulous thing and making it is so hard. Right. Like, but, I'm never going to make it as an influencer, you know, like if that becomes like a shift, you know, if all people in media have to then be influencers. So I'm like, well, I can influence somebody to like pick up their litter. You know, I like I'm not I can't get you to buy anything. <laughs> you know, I, I can't like no one's like trying to jack my style on the on Instagram. So if if, if making it includes that, you know, but yeah, it's 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 what's the definition. I mean, you could, you know, I'm I'm assuming in theater, like, your version of making it could be like I'm in the original Broadway cast of the biggest Tony winning musical or like I'm teaching high school musical theater and I absolutely love it. And I do community theater and it's super fun and yeah. like it feeds my soul and it like allows me to share my gifts. But like who has the stomach for constantly getting beaten down like <laughs> all the time? I mean, it's hard. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, um, I was reading a piece today, a New York Times media critic, Ben Smith, and he was writing about Maggie Haberman, who is a prolific reporter who has covered Donald Trump 
you know, she's just drilled him every single day since, you know, before he became president. And the hate that she has gotten online, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's dangerous. It's truly dangerous. And yet she keeps going. And, um, and I mean, I don't experience anything like that, but I do think there's something, you know, that people in media are like, you have to have a rhino skin or be a little bit like, <laughs> like you, you, you either have to sort of be wearing blinders to all of that, or you just have to be like, yep, it's hard. Like people are cruel. Things suck. Keep going. And that's really hard. It's really, I, I, I wouldn't begrudge anybody who's like the New York times, not for me. Like I'm good working at my community paper. I think most every job is going to have the small time community, regional, and then the big time. And everyone will find their success in that ladder at a different point and be good. Right. Or they won't be and they'll get fired. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I'm wondering if you found this to be true as well, especially if you've auditioned for or pursued any voiceover work. That is one tough nut to crack. For years, I have gone to voiceover auditions, made a voiceover demo, and spent thousands of dollars on classes and training. Yet, I have only booked one voiceover job in my entire career. On stage, I have the luxury, so to speak, of utilizing my entire person, not just my voice, but also facial expression, movement and dance, body language, and physical interaction with other actors. Yet, behind the mic... The voice has to do the job of all of that. You learn over time if your voice is your is a tool that you're using, how to modify the tool so that it doesn't sound terrible. I mean, luckily, you know, my producers are great and they can hear all of these things. Like, I think I have a lot of energy in a read. And then they're like, um, could you be any more low energy right now? And I'm like, what? I feel like I'm so amped and pumped. And they're like, get out of here. The same thing happens to me in voiceover. I remember I was doing a self-tape for a voiceover. So generally, I will see the copy and maybe this particular section. I'll just record it three to five times, you know, and then move on to the next section, and then I'll go back and edit it all together. So, you know, I do my three to five takes, and, I, and I'm doing the, you know, and I am feeling different. I'm energizing differently. This, And then I go back and listen to it, literally the same inflection. Yeah. I say the yeah. same sentence the same way. And even though I thought yep. five times I did it differently, I say the same sentence the same way. Like, how did yeah. I do that? Right, right. Our brains get in these little patterns. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's all, it's, I I find, you know, that as a person who really likes to talk, I find it very interesting the ways in which we can use our voice to, you know, achieve a goal to influence people. and And so thinking about, not in a navel-gazy way about how you sound, but in the ways that you're conveying information um, and the ways that you could convey information differently and have more impact. I think it's very interesting to me. You know, and I have a very particular voice. Like, I, I don't sound like lots of other people. And my dynamic range when I do these reads is, like, all over the place. It's like, you know, I don't... I can't do the Ira Glass read no matter how hard I try or how hard I've ever tried to do that very particular you know sort of flat intonation I can't do it I just my vocal cords don't work that way and I think that's fun I think it's fun to like 
experiment and explore and all of that. And it might not make a difference for anybody else, but you know. Well, you know, so they say that what you think is what's going to come out of your mouth, you know, especially for like voiceover and stuff like that, where all you have is the audio. So how we think about it should influence that. That's the hope. You know, I've certainly gotten this plenty of times in audition where I think that I am doing this character in this particular way. I'm, I'm emoting, I'm doing this. I finish the director gives me a direction and said, could you please emote this way? And mm. I was like, that's all I was doing for the last five minutes. Like what? Right. Yeah. And, and I'm like, well, obviously that did not come across. So. Right. Right. Totally. I, I really, I love like podcast is performance. And so it feeds that desire of mine to perform, but where I don't have to do it in front of a live audience. Now, even though Lauren doesn't perform herself in front of an audience, she has written work for others to perform. And one such place where her words were brought to life, or at least that was the intention, was at Vermont Stage, a not-for-profit theater company founded in 1994. They have, uh, and I don't know if they still have it, but they used to have um, a, an annual Christmas essay thing. And then those essays or monologues or whatever you want to call them would then be read by, you know, actors and or sort of performed by other people, you know. So I did a thing for them years ago. I mean, I, I think it was after I had moved out of Vermont and they asked if I would write something. And um, I did my, like, I, I work in an, in an oral medium. I used to work in print and writing for print in your eyeballs is different than writing for the ear. And I've honed that skill, but I, I had a, like a leg up because I'm a more sort of literal writer and I, I write as I talk uh, often. So, mm -hmm. you know, so I had already written this piece, which was meant to be delivered. Like poetry is meant to be delivered. It's not just meant to be like read in your head, you know? And so yeah. she read this and I was, was I it was delivered like, like off book as a monologue kind of thing or, or was it literally read? No, she was reading it. It wasn't performed in any kind of way. Um, I mean, it's fine. It was, you know, I've never, I mean, I think, you know, when I was a kid, like when I was in elementary school, my mom sent me to like musical theater camp in the summer, just like not sleepaway camp, but like day camp, you know, uh, to get me out of the house. But I was also a theatrical kid and I continued, you know, I took chorus and all of that in, in middle school. And I was just really, really rubbish at singing and probably crap at acting too. But I was the narrator in our town in eighth grade. So that was okay. pretty, pretty excellent. When I moved into high school, sadly, I stopped doing all that because I was an athlete. And it was like, there's like, I was a pretty serious athlete. And um, so I what was, were your sport? I, I, I played choice. lacrosse and I, I played pretty seriously in high school. And then in college, I played in division one. And so, I, you know, you just kind of specialize and I wasn't going to be, you know, in this school musical. Also, I mean, I just really have a terrible singing voice. And over the years, my range has closed up to like, I mean, <laughs> I couldn't even like go up one octave or even half an octave or anything. So I realized there are things that we can be appreciators about. And I am a great theater appreciator and a, I love 
the arts and I'm creative in my own way in my work, but I am not, you know, I'm, I'm not bound for the stage. Sadly, uh, in a next life in the, in another life I will be. Which is so interesting because like just listening to spectacular failures, you definitely want to tell a story and you would, and you definitely come across as someone, I mean, like narrating our town, that seems like a perfect fit because you are the one kind of guiding stories now. So it seemed like that you're still doing even what you did in eighth grade. Yeah, I'm like a conduit, I think. You know, it's funny because I always joke with people like my dream job is being a tour guide. Um, Like I don't even care where. Like I just want to be the tour guide (laughs) because like I have the information and then I am the conduit for you like learning a thing. But we're also walking maybe at the same time or something, you know, like we're outdoors. I'm carrying an umbrella. Like I don't know. Um, but if I ever retire, I want to retire to be a tour guide in some way. But I feel like that's what I'm doing is like tour guiding people through various stories. And I, I think it's really fun. And it, I mean, we do an enormous amount of reporting. You know, these stories often are set in the past. And so it is original reporting. Um, and that's totally fine. I mean, I did that for a very long time in my life. And I'm very happy to make use of all of the great reporting that is out there and sort of bring it all together in a cohesive package and then share that with people uh, in, a, in an entertaining way. So yeah, I, I think it's a little, you know, I'm your, I'm the guide. At the core, I, I think podcasts and, and artists, whether on stage or in front of a camera, it really comes down to the storytelling and it comes down to presenting characters on a stage or presenting the, the stories like you do of real people. And so what do you think are those ingredients? What makes for a great story? Oh, you know, you have to have the basic elements. You have to have a a narrative arc. That's sort of just baseline. But then from there, I think it's the sort of, you know, for us, it's the presentation. It's the package. It's the people that we talk to. It's the sort of angles that we approach it at. I mean, you know, if you wanted to know about Livent, you could go read the Wikipedia entry. You know, I mean, all of these, like, I'm not, yeah. these aren't stories that aren't out there in the ether. Um, but if you want, you know, if you want, you know, richness and complexity and perhaps a new take on something or a different framing, then, you know, I think, I think all of those things are important to think about. You know, I mean, what I do is a little different than a very strict sort of narrative, like I'm telling you a story in a, you know, five-part series or something. And so there, you know, you probably need characters to sort of drive the narrative. It can't just be like experty people talking. Which is probably why you like that live one so much, because you were actually able to bring on, there were were characters, actors, there were people who knew about the drama that was going on with live. Yeah. I mean, we always try to get as close to the sort of failure. We always say close to the failure as possible by getting people who worked at the company, who, you know, had some business with the operation so that it doesn't feel like I'm just telling you something that has no connection to real people. Right. I mean, right. That, right. That it's has not no just impact. people sitting it's, back and hypothesizing about. Right. I mean, things. all of these stories impact 
real people. Uh, you know, at the live at one, there were people who lost their jobs when their fraud mm-hmm. was found out. There were people who Garth Trebinsky had contracted with who then were out hundreds of thousands of dollars on contracts that were never, they were not made whole. So there are real consequences. And I think, you know, we try to spotlight those, but who knows what the secret sauce is for anything to be successful. I mean, there are so many, I'm sure there's plenty of evidence in theater where people were like, I had no idea people would like that. You know, I had no idea that that would be a hit. I had no idea, you know, that that would draw big crowds. And then, you know, something like, I think of like Alison Bechtel's Fun Home. You know, that seems like hugely risky. Yeah, it really was. And I mean, you're you're taking a graphic novel, a graphic memoir, and turning it into something for the stage that is sung, you know, and it's about like a girl basically discovering her sexuality. But it's not, you could tell somebody that story and they'd be like, that would never be something for the stage and people would never like it. And then lo and behold, it was a hit and an award-winning. And I think a big part of it is that while the story, it's interesting, but I wouldn't say it's like some groundbreaking story of someone coming to terms with their sexuality, but how they told the story then became what was groundbreaking, I think, you know, presenting the three different versions of herself and the different ways that they incorporated the staging. So again, it's just as much the presentation as it is the content. Mm-hmm. I think the packaging of things, you know, and how you tell it is really important. I mean, we spend a lot of time working on our scripts and trying to make them fun and interesting for people. And I love writing. So, (laughs) no, I hate writing. I love having written uh, as the saying goes. (laughs) Writing itself sucks. Right. I like it once it's done and then I'm just you know, reciting it or, you know, recording it. But yeah, the process of writing is very laborious. Oh, it's gross. I hate it. Um, I tallied it up and season two, in terms of word count, was in 10 episodes, the same length as a book. You know, that's insane. (laughs) So does that mean the the Lauren Ober book is on its way? (laughs) No. No, because I have a real job, you know. Uh, I think think people are less interested in in me than the stories that we're telling, so I think we'll stick to that material. So, since you have a show called Spectacular Failures, I was wondering of your own ah, spectacular failure is there one that, <laughs> well let's try to just pick one uh, that kind of is stands out is memorable i have no shortage of stories about that um okay so i'll i'll give you like the way that i see my life is like a sort of i see it in my head as a sort of pre radio and sort of post radio training and so when i went to that bougie radio camp um in the middle of that and that was about 2012 my longtime partner and i you know uh, broke up in the middle of that and then i had no place to live um and i mean it was very amicable but i still had to find a place to live and then i didn't have a job because i had i had left 
a very bad job in order to go and do this radio training. Um, and surprise, surprise, when you just have like two months of training, people aren't like, oh my God, yes, work for us. We'll pay you so much money. <laughs> like you're so good already. Um, so I had no job, no partner, no place to live. Um, I had to live on a friend's farm for a little bit, like, so that I could, you know, I house sat. I was like, I, I was without a home. I had a PO box. And so, um, that is not something many people can say that I'm living on a farm and have a PO box. That was your life. That was my life. I would just like go and hang out with them when they were like, taking care of the horses. And I would just record a bunch of stuff. Somehow I packaged something up into a story and managed to sell it. And I remember driving in my car and then hearing that story on NPR and being like, oh my God, all isn't lost. So then I finally, I ended up getting a job in Washington, DC and it was not in radio. It was still in print. I promptly nine months later got fired from that job. (laughs) I got fired by somebody though who right after she fired me, went on mental health leave and never came back after six months. So, so I'm like, You broke her. I don't know that I broke her. I think <laughs> that she was unwell. But it actually, you know, it's a, it's a failure in so much as, you know, I didn't have a job and, you know, I was paying big city rent um, and was very worried about my financial future. Um, but it allowed me then to really focus on audio and really hustle. I always said I couldn't be a freelancer Mm. and nothing proves you wrong. Like, you know, (laughs) having to do it, like being forced into it, you know, like I don't have any fallback skills. I like, I'm terrible at waiting tables. I'm just, I get flustered and angry. Yeah. I think I would be too irritated with people. Yeah. Yeah. And I would forget things. I did it one time and I just was like, was not my thing. So I just had to hustle and I sold a bunch of stories and did a bunch of recordings for other people. And I just hustled. I managed to sort of pull myself out of that and, and get a regular job at the NPR station here in Washington. Um, but it was definitely not easy. That was a big, I would say, failure. I mean, getting fired always sucks. And it's happened to me a few times, you know, and it's ter- it's terrible. Or just losing a job of any kind is awful. And I, everybody who lost their jobs because of coronavirus, I'm like, I feel you. I feel for everybody who was involved in theater because it's just... And it's a thing that I miss so much. I miss it. I was mm-hmm. like, like we, my friends and I always talk about like, what's the first thing that you, what's the thing that you want to do most? And I'm like, two things, go to the movies and go see live theater. Um, Cause I see a lot of it here in DC and I'm really bummed. And I have plenty of friends who are involved in theater and it just, my heart breaks for them. So, you know. Yeah. But, I mean, there's not just Kennedy center, but there's like great, regional theaters there in dc well i mean i mean people in new york call it regional theater but it actually there are many many shows that debut here um there are many musicals that are tested here before they move up to new york and so you know i mean dear evan hansen i got to see the original cast um when it was at the arena stage here and they they, yeah arena is great they preview a lot of shows you know, also um, come from away was also previewed here at Ford Theater before making it up to Broadway. So yeah, we we get a lot of we get a lot of stuff here, and uh, and it's a great theater town. And my fingers are crossed that we get back to it. Well, all of us certainly have our fingers and toes crossed, hoping that theater will come back this year. 
I'm pretty much looking forward to this summer as when theater will begin at least regionally and Broadway says it will start in the fall. So we shall just wait and see and continue to hope. But until that time, and even going on beyond that, I have this podcast. And maybe you've thought about starting a podcast as well. It has certainly been the thing to do during the pandemic. And so in part two of my conversation with Lauren, we'll get into some of the nitty gritty of podcasting. The process of producing episodes they use at Spectacular Failures. What the future of podcasting holds. And Lauren gives some podcast recommendations. Hint, they're all podcast musicals. To learn more about this podcast, go to whyillnevermakeit.com. There you can sign up for the monthly newsletter, join a WinMe membership, or check out other artist resources. The latest five-star review comes from Sea Surfer on Apple Podcasts. Quote, Patrick is an excellent and thoughtful host. Providing this view into the world of acting is really interesting and insightful. There's great attention to detail, excellent conversation, and high production value that goes into each of these episodes. Plus, they're fun to listen to. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for those kind words, and I am honored and humbled by such a great review of this podcast. Well, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, thanking you for listening to this podcast. Dylan Adams is the booking producer. Music in this episode provided by Blue Dot Sessions and Vortex. Join Lauren and me next time as we talk more about why I'll never make it. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.